0: Thanks, Joy, and team. Good morning, Whoa, everyone. Normally I get a really faded outro, but they've stopped then. Um, I'm feeling pretty holy this morning because I've actually, well, I mean, as much as normal, <laughs> so I've actually uh, driven back late last night from northern New South Wales. It's my little sister's 30th birthday. They're all st- still down there. Um, so I hope that that means that God does something amazing through me this morning uh, for making the effort. But of course, when I get here, I'm glad, glad to be here. We are continuing uh, to, to sort of dive into this uh, new series, which is uh, on exile. And if you missed Graham's prologue, uh, we decided it was a prologue last week which was delivered in a t-shirt, controversially. Uh, Go have a a listen to it, because it was just a great introduction to where we're going. Now, our desire with this series is really to get us into some stories, right? Because most of Scripture is stories. Uh, We might like to look for sort of propositions and um, orders and systematic stuff, but uh, God doesn't give it to us that way for some reason. Most of the time, it comes through stories. So we're really uh, looking for the value that is going to come in living in these stories for a while. But To make some sense of these stories, there's a little bit of work to be done and I'm going to try and do some of that this morning but I'm also looking at the time and I'm not going to do all of what I planned to do. So hopefully we can just uh, have a look at some tools for reading these stories this morning and there'll be enough little cookies and Easter eggs there to give us some joy on the way. God help us. So if you remember last week... Graham introduced us to this sort of touchstone passage um, that we're going to be coming back to over the course of the year, Uh, Jeremiah 29. It's a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. And it might shock you to read its contents because Jeremiah's writing to a people who are under a kind of evil empire as the Bible frames it. And yet Jeremiah's letter which says this is God's word to you, the exiles, does not say rage against the empire with every available resource. But it says instead this. This is what the Lord God Almighty of Israel says to you, the exiles that I carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses... Settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for Babylon, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What a radical message. Um there is a little bit of contention in the proposition that we're putting out there uh, that it's worth us as 21st century Christians in Australia putting ourselves in the shoes of the exiles um, I don't know if you've thought of yourself as an exile and I can think of some reasons why perhaps it might not be appropriate to think of ourselves as exiles I, I think uh to, to the, the, there are dimensions of an exilic experience that if we were kind of to claim might be kind of overegging the pudding a little bit. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but in culture at the moment, there's a bit of a race to the bottom when it comes to a sort of victimhood status. Uh, we sort of seem to recognise that some people haven't done so well in modernity. Uh, there's often people on the margins. Minorities who seem to be excluded from some of the benefits of the life that uh, the lifestyle we kind of enjoy as people in the 21st century West, but then it's sort of gotten to the point where you know now it's like white men who are the most victimized people in the culture, um, which that seems like over-egging it a little bit. When you look at Parliament, you look at who's running the corporations in, in our country. To be sure, there are dimensions, aspects of all of our lives where we might experience some sort of victimhood, where we might experience some sort of exile. But it's nuanced, right? Um, we need to, to to apply wisdom to this task. So I want to give you a little bit of uh, some tools for, for the application of this stuff. It... It came home so strongly um, to me. Yesterday, I was on Kudra Creek down in northern New South Wales, which is just this pristine creek system um, that's become quite a holiday sort of uh, zone, I guess. And um, we were down there in the afternoon a- and popping across sort of at various points in the day for a swim from the caravan. And there was a Curry family that had set up in the morning on the beach and they stayed there all day. And I thought, imagine the kind of experience of, of being Indigenous and coming down to your place and seeing it change, right? I mean, and in a place like Kadra Creek, it's still beautiful, and I, th- I think that family were enjoying themselves as much as anyone down there. But then it sort of makes me think about the Turbul uh, and um, the local people from here, Uh, sitting on the Brisbane River and looking at the glass and and concrete, that sort of picture makes me think, well, maybe that's a little bit more of an experience of exile than the one that I might be having. So how do we identify who's really in exile? How do we know whether we're in exile and whether it's a useful picture for us to consider? Here's... um, some data that was released by the MacRindle Institute, and I'm going to do this uh, lasery thing that, that Graham discovered for us last week. If you look there, uh, that's the percentage of Australians these days who identify as not religious or As you can see just above it, spiritual, but not religious. And that bar graph in the bottom is the kind of exponential growth of those who identify as none, so not having a religion on the census. So it's gone from pretty much 0% up until about 1960, and now it's over 30% of people not identifying as Christian in Australia. And we're seeing that reflected in our laws, aren't we? We're seeing it reflected in our culture more broadly. And you could probably point to a whole bunch of things that are evidence of this change in society, are evidence of the fact that maybe we're not living where we once were. Maybe the church isn't in this position of privilege that it once held. Of course, there are mixed evidences of this if you talk to any American and Americans uh, sort of pride themselves on living in the most Christian country in the world and you hear that we still teach and they hear that we still teach scripture in Australian schools they'll look at you gobsmacked because that was something that went out quite a while ago in the United States and is a tremendous privilege actually that we might take for granted that uh, last week we had a training event here where 60 chaplains uh, or teachers of RI came along and did a refresher course in teaching religious instruction in our state schools. You could say, uh, if we hold that reality and claim that we're some sort of victimised, marginalised people in society at the same time as Christians, well, we'd have to be careful about making a claim like that, wouldn't we? Nevertheless, society is changing, and I think that's what we're feeling as Christians. That's why uh, some people might begin to look again at this exile story and wonder whether it has anything to say to us in the 21st century as Australian Christians. If you go to the dictionary, the dictionary definition of exile will say something like this. It's the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. But if we think about uh, what scripture says about exile, we're probably more likely to think of something like this. So the 70 year period of Israel's exile from the Holy Land, from Canaan under the Babylonian Empire. And um, what we've got a picture of there, some of you will know that in the late or early 6th, sorry, so about 590-something, 595, 597, uh, the Babylonian Empire, flexing its muscles, came into Israel. There was a bit of resistance, um, but eventually they conquered Jerusalem, and they did what they typically would do in those days. They took the sort of best and brightest from Jerusalem, back to Babylon and that had a couple of purposes one it sort of cut the head off the snake, uh, it was harder for the subjugated people to rebel if all their best and brightest were gone but then also the Babylonian empire got to kind of absorb the best of the people that they had put down and eventually um, the whole city kind of got ransacked about 10 years later because the Jews just wouldn't um, sit down uh, <laughs> You might also have a picture like this in your head. So thinking of Psalm 137, you might notice the, the Lion of Judah in a cave, cage down the bottom there uh, where it talks about by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept, we hung our harps in the trees. We couldn't even find a song to sing when we remembered the Jerusalem that was the name uh, for Jerusalem that's used in that poem is Zion. When we remembered what we had, you know, we had this beautiful temple, we had this promised land, we had uh, a, a kingdom that seemed to work. Is that the picture of exile that that you guys have when I use the word? Well, increasingly. Uh, scholars are recognizing that exile is a very useful sort of lens to read the whole of scripture through. We might look at the timeline of scripture and and think well it's just that tiny little black bit there and so we might not uh, pay it a heap of attention but even when you begin to look at that timeline where Israel is split you will read the prophets time and time again saying hang on a second guys things aren't how they should be here, something's coming, it's not going to be good some of them even explicitly say a foreign power is going to come in and take us away so that's a significant section there I won't get, whoops, too stuck I've, the the system's gone into exile there we go that's a significant section there um, leading up to the exile but then after the exile too you can see up the top there the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah so that's when the people come back from Ezra Ev- uh, exile, and they're still grappling with what it means to be in the promised land because they get there. Everything that made the promised land the promised land for them in their memory isn't there, and there's still these foreign oppressive powers that are there that they have to navigate. So, what I want to get us to see this morning is that there's a chance that as we read. The whole of Scripture, there will be little clues about the exile there, definitely after the exile, definitely in the prophets leading up to the exile, but as we're going to see just briefly this morning, even further back. Here's just a few terms um, that I'd like you to think about as you now begin to read your bibles looking for exile as a theme yeah galah thanks jenny if you're particularly upset about it it's flaming galah but uh this is a hebrew word that comes up um time and time again in scripture and there'll be little variations on it because hebrews like that uh, that talks about the people who were kind of cast out who were taken away interestingly Um, when you look at what the word means, kind of if you break it down to its root, it also means to uncover. So you'll often also find this word attached to being naked, which might not make a whole heap of sense to us, but that's because we're not particularly attached to land like ancient peoples are or to home like ancient peoples are. If you think about what it feels like to be naked, it's to be exposed Right, it's to be vulnerable it's to be away from something rather important uh, that we need to kind of get on with life so there's that word galah there is also garash and this is one of these terms that comes up time and time again which means to be driven out or to be cast out, that makes maybe a little bit more sense and then here's just another kind of interesting thing to keep your eye out for uh, there's a lot of talk about the East when it comes to exile. I'll just give you a few examples here. So here is the story that I want to suggest is the fundamental and original exile. Genesis 3, Graham talked about this. God created the cosmos as a home for us. Um, and Scripture talks about the Garden of Eden, this place that is per- Sort of specially designed for human life, a place of peace, a place of prosperity. Human beings do the wrong thing, and we find ourselves at this point in the story where God banishes human beings from this home that He had created for them. So there you can see Gerash and East already after He drove the human beings out of the garden. um, He placed on the east side of the garden these kind of guardians of the garden so that human beings couldn't get back in. We'll just move fairly quickly through these. Here's another one. I don't know if you've ever read Genesis chapter 3 and 4 right next to each other. You'll think uh, Adam and Eve expelled from the garden, Cain and Abel... uh, the problems that goes on with those two guys, the brothers. But if you look at it closely, it's almost the same story with slightly different characters. So you might remember from Genesis 3 the curse that gets put on Adam. It's got to do with the soil and being alienated from it and having to work. Uh, he, as we see, gets kind of pushed out to the east with Eve. Same thing happens for Cain here after he kills his brother Abel. You're under a curse. You're driven. There's that word, gerah. You will be a restless wanderer, so you won't have your home anymore. Cain says, this is too much for me, God. This is, this is like the worst thing you could do to me. You're driving me from the land, he says again there. And you can see there that he's driven east of Eden again. As the people moved eastward, we read in Genesis 11. So we're flashing forward a little bit here. There's a whole heap more people on the earth. They found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. The people said to themselves, come let us build ourselves a city in the east that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Anyone remember the name of that city? Babel, right? So there's a connection there, Babel and Babylon. This city of exile in the east. Kind of weird stuff, right? I don't know if anyone's ever noticed this. Um, the story just kind of goes on when you start to look through the lens of exile. So Genesis 12, we're picking up with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. God says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. He's being made naked there in the ancient Near East. He's being stripped of what protects him, which is country, tribal group, all that kind of stuff. Interestingly... When it comes to the east thing, there's kind of a reversal of that. So Abraham's father started in the area that we associate with Babylon. He travelled up north and then Abraham moves into Canaan, the land that we would call Israel these days. Another kind of exile takes place. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. If you read your Bible, Joseph is taken into exile where? In Egypt, here again, this idea of being naked, away from the place that God had promised for you, those things that will protect you. So it is a theme that comes through and through Scripture. Here again, when it comes time for Joseph's descendants, the Hebrews in Egypt, to be liberated, God says to Moses, actually, Pharaoh's going to drive you out. That same word. So exile is something that is really fundamental to reading scripture, understanding it. It gets trickier though. It's not just about land and country. And this is a key story that I want us to think about this morning. You guys, if you've read your Bible, might know that the exiles eventually get a chance to come home from Babylon, right? Um, There were groups led by Ezra, and Nehemiah and this is just such a poignant story I think Um, so the people have laid the foundation stone they've returned from exile in Babylon they've laid the foundation stone for the new temple in Jerusalem The, the priestly class have got their special garments and vestments on again they're throwing this big kind of party to say we're finally home And it says there in Ezra 3, you can see, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. They wept aloud because it wasn't as glorious as the temple that they remembered. And so there was this sense in them, they'd been longing to go back actually. They'd been longing to go back in time to when things were better, to a situation that seemed more ideal. We have a word for that in English, nostalgia. Right? How often do we realise that when we are nostalgic about something we forget all the bad stuff don't we? We just remember what's good. Any other stories where there was nostalgia amongst the people of Israel that you can think of? Moses, it's horrible out here. Why can't we just go back to our captors in Egypt? Something, I think, in in the human spirit that comes out here. The point, really, that I want to make with this passage is that even though the exiles were home, there was this sense they realized when they saw it forming in front of them that they weren't Going to be home in the same sense. And we should be very familiar with this idea as Christians because just before Jesus comes onto the scene, there's this crazy prophet in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and he's out by the Jordan. Seems like he's at the place where at least in the memory of the people, the Hebrews crossed over from the wilderness into the promised land. And if we turned to Mark, we could find the prophet Isaiah being quoted about this prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you. He will be a voice calling in the wilderness, saying, make straight paths for him. Isaiah is talking about The return of the exiles in this passage and so John the Baptist is going out to the place where the Hebrews first came in to the promised land and he's saying come pass through these waters again he's coming he's coming and that was such a captivating message for the people they heard it and thought well we're at home in Israel, but it doesn't feel like home. The promises of the promised land don't seem to be real for us right now. We've got this idea of Zion. We've got this idea of Jerusalem. We've got this idea of what it was that God wanted for us here. And we look around. We've got Roman oppressors. We've got corrupt priests and ruling classes. Poverty. We've got religious division. We want to go outside of the promised land to come back in. We want this prophet who says, you can actually go through those waters and start again to take us through those waters. That's what baptism was about. So we can see even in the days just preceding Jesus... There was this strong sense for those living in the promised land that they were still in exile. We've got the original human beings exiled from the state of peace that God created them for. We've got the father of the people of Israel um, talking about himself as an exile and a sojourner. He says, I'm a traveler when he finally comes to Canaan. We've got people even in Jesus' day who've been living in the promised land now for generations saying, we don't really feel like we're home. And so I want to suggest for us this morning, and I can see that I'm going to have to wrap up soon, but this is a good spot. That exile, as much as anything, to be an exile is to be someone who dreams about A true home. And I would suggest this morning that you could be the Prime Minister of Australia and looking at life, and though you've got privilege and power and money, still a dreamer about a home that is better than the place that we live in. It's also, and Graham brought this up last week, to long for shalom, to long for peace. It's to long for that state that God created us for where things work, where there isn't suffering, where we're under God's rule and life is working as it should. It's interesting... Once we recognise ourselves as exiles, as people who dream about something better, as people who long for peace, our imagination can take us in a couple of different directions. We can, like those old families who were with Ezra, who saw the foundation stone of the new temple, we can wail. It actually says in the verse that as big a party as they were having, the wailing could be heard some people were so sad that they finally got back to jerusalem and they saw the foundation of the temple and it wasn't as good at it as it used to be that they completely killed that party for the next generation was going to have to build that thing and take it forward we can be like the hebrews in the desert longing to go back into our chains right Well, we can begin to dream in a new way. And one of the things that you'll notice about the exiles that the scripture points us to as exemplary, one of them's Joseph, actually. He's got something going on with dreams, right? And hang on a second, this is another one of those weird things. What's going on with Daniel and Joseph? Really similar stories there. You might remember that Daniel, one of the exiles, one of those elites that was taken out of Jerusalem, he had this gift for dreams. And we're going to have a bit of a better look at it um, sometime in the coming weeks, but the king of Babylon's really troubled by this dream that he's having. And he says to his hordes of magicians and astrologers, you guys need to tell me what I dreamt and then explain it for me or I'm going to kill you. And understandably, the magicians are like, and astrologers and dream interpreters, that's kind of full-on, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it'd be great if you tell us, and then we'll tell you what it means. But he's really insistent. No, you're all going to die unless one of you can tell me what I dreamt and then explain it for me. And Daniel, a Hebrew carried off to this far land, he says to the king, give me a night." Right? I'm going to come back to you. So he goes away, and he has this vision, and God shows him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then explains it for him. And he can go back to Nebuchadnezzar and say, listen, no one can really do what you've asked us to do. It's completely unreasonable, really, to expect that someone would know the dream that you had. But God knows what you dreamt. And this is it. And he tells uh this dream back to Nebuchadnezzar and you might remember it of this huge kind of statue that's made up of different things it's got a golden head and then um, I don't want to take up too much time to get into it but uh, you probably have heard about it and it was probably because someone was telling you when the world was going to end I don't have that for you this morning I'm afraid and I don't actually think that's entirely what it's about The common uh, or sort of traditional interpretation of that dream is that Daniel sees the four empires that are going to come after Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, he actually says, you're the king of kings to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, king of kings, you're amazing. You've got this amazing empire. but It's not going to be the last one. There's going to be another one after it, and then another one after it, and then another one after it. And excuse me for not reading this, but I'm just trying to wrap up. And he says, then this rock will be cut out of the side of a mountain. It's not going to be cut by human hands. And it's going to be hurled at these empires. And it's going to smash the statue. All the gold, metal, clay, iron, it's going to be turned to dust. And it's going to blow away. And that rock that was not cut by human hands, is going to become a kingdom that lasts forever. It actually uses the the language of mountain, which was really significant for ancient people. It's going to be like the summit of all authority and power and order in the world. As I read that again this week, it occurs to me there's two ways of dreaming. There's a very understandable way of dreaming about better days that once were, I think we can be forgiven for dreaming that way. But I don't know how useful it is, actually. I don't know how useful it was for those young Jews laying the foundation of a new stone in Jerusalem to hear the old people crying about how much better it was back in the day. There is another way of dreaming that accepts that we have suffered, that accepts that the world is changing, that there's loss, right? There are things to mourn. There have been better days. But there yet has not been the full institution of a kingdom that will end earthly kingdoms and that will bring that state of peace for which every human heart longs about and so as we wrestle with this idea of exile and I'll ask the band to come back up this morning I want to challenge you to dream again because that's one of the things that exiles do, they're dreamers and interpreters of dreams but as we dream together let's be careful that it's not too nostalgic There have been great times in the past. There have been great achievements. Yes, there have probably been times that have been more reflective for our people, whoever your people might be, of the goodness of God made manifest amongst us in kind of material sense. But actually, you have not yet seen the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. However, it's good, however good it's been whichever Prime Minister for you uh, represents the golden age of Australian politics and society it was not Jesus right? it <laughs> wasn't Jesus, wasn't the Prince of Peace the 60s were a good time or the 50s or whatever it was but it wasn't Shalom Shalom's coming again let's dream together Let's mourn, sure, but let's get on with the business of living like residents of Zion in a foreign land, right? Because when God moved most powerfully through his people, David, Solomon, they were the golden age for Israel. But it wasn't perfect. Neither of them was Jesus, right? And actually, what ends up happening when you look at history is you get so good at making God's decisions for him that you start to trust yourself a little bit too much. And oftentimes when you've got it good, you're not mindful of the fact that ultimately you're always going to have to be relying on God. God, I pray that you would give us dreams and visions. God, I pray that we would... um, feel deep grief the grief that you must feel in your heart when we see the darkness surrounding us that envelops people's lives, that brings them into bondage that ensnares them that means that they miss the point but Lord help us to be wise to the fact that we're not immune from that God, I pray that we would be obedient to your word, this word that we've picked up as echoing through the ages from Jeremiah, that we are to seek the peace and prosperity of the place that we live. Because, God, we thank you that by Jesus you have made us able to live in Jerusalem in the deepest sense now, even in the midst of Babylon help us to hear your word and obey it. Amen. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com right